Mind Crime Victor Show with me, Swin Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Keith Preston to discuss can a society exist without elites? Tim. You, Keith, a while back posted a video by Wayne Price, which I watched on Do Marxists and Anarchists Agree? And it seems that on the ends, Marxists agree with in practice on the question of elites. This was the question. One of the questions I thought was in the video was um, could a society without elites exist? Um, and I think on the fringes, they, they do in a way agree. Uh, Murray Rothbard, especially the young one, is very much an anarchist who has a lot of American style left anarchism. In there. And by the question of elites, I think we need to sort of define you know, what types of elites you could ask. You know, could a society without elites exist? Well, what type of elites? You know, I think there's a famous guy who says the bootmaker. I think in your interview with Brent Langle, um, uh, or debate, I should, shall say, uh, Brent cited, you know, you both more or less agree with the, the, the authority of the bootmaker. So let's say an elite bootmaker. But I think there's a big difference between bootmakers and, let's say, the Bidens or the Clintons or the, you know, the, the Rothschilds or something like that or the Rockefellers. I think there's a, probably a big difference. But it's more of a difference in degrees here. So you could sort of define what types of elites would exist. In our current society, we do clearly have a kind of elite I think that's quite obvious. Um, um, and we also do have a sort of pet, petty elite, too. But you also see elites – elite could be innocuous where you have an elite basketball player or an elite chess player. We had an interview with Todd Lewis recently, and that was one of the points I made. It's like it seems like there can be elite you know, elite intellectuals, elite athletes. It doesn't seem like that's a problem. Um, um, and – this is sort of what Jordan Peterson is, even all the much maligned. I, and I generally agree with a lot of the criticisms of him. He'll talk about competence. You know, people, some people are better at, you know, some people can't, you get the mentally handicapped or retarded or whatever, what political correct word you want to use. So those people are clearly unelite, shall we say. Um, so generally speaking, do you think a society without elites can exist? Can a society without, let's say, a ruling class exist? And if there are any examples what would they be? Thanks for being on, Keith. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think you know, one thing that you've already touched on is the question of what are the elites and what are the different kinds of elites and what kind of elites should we find objectionable? And usually when we talk about elites, we talk about uh, what C. Wright Mills called the power elite. That is the people who actually have power in society and can command the actions of others. I mean, those are really the kinds of elites we need to be the most concerned about. Um, and elites come in, in different forms. Uh, you know, there's the political elite, the people who actually run the state. There's the financial elite and the economic elite, the people that are the top of the pyramid uh, economically. Uh, and there might be different reasons why they got there. Uh, but you know, some may have inherited their position. Some may be, you know, particularly successful investors. Some may be uh, particularly successful entrepreneurs, you know, with or without the assistance of the assistance of government. Um, and then, of course, you have the elites of, say, the military and, and uh, various professions. The members of the Supreme Court are part of the elite. Um, so you've got the elite that span the spectrum of political institutions, legal institutions, economic institutions, educational institutions, the media, military institutions, you know, technology, science, all of these things. Um, 
I, I will say that I don't think you can have a society without experts. Uh, there are going to ha always have to be experts and always will be experts. Um, you know, there's going to be some people who are simply better at repairing an automobile than others. Uh, there are going to be people who are better at um, you know, doing gene splicing than others. Uh, you know, different people have different abilities, different motivations, different interests, uh, different uh, learning styles, different kinds of intelligences. So I think there always is going to be some kind of um, uh, system of experts. The question is, how do experts, um, how do you prevent experts from becoming an elite? Now, not all elites are necessarily experts. Like when we look at some of the uh, political elites that we see today, it's hard to determine what exactly they, they would be experts at, you know, deceit maybe or, or guile or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, expertise is not the same thing as being elite per se. There are some people who are elite simply because they were born into the right family. You know, it's nothing they did uh, due to any uh, merits of their own. Um, so, um, I, I think that that's really, really the dis, dis, um, the distinction that has to be made. Uh, so the question of is one of power. How do we prevent power from becoming so concentrated that we have a kind of artificially a privileged elite? Uh, you know, not not somebody who is elite because well they were a better runner, so they you know they did better in the in the track meet or contest or, you know, somebody's uh, uh, physically stronger, so they were a better boxer or something like that. You know, we'll always have elites of that type. But when we actually talk about people who have power to tell other people what to do, uh, can we do without elites of that type? Uh, the right libertarian or conservative libertarian response to that tends to be, well, we have to distinguish between meritorious elites and non-meritorious elites. And usually they break it down into the market versus state dichotomy. They'll say, well, you know, somebody who is successful through entrepreneurship or just superior skill or, or uh, you know, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps or something like that, somebody like that is a natural elite and a rightful elite. And, you know, and, and perhaps if somebody like that is, say, the CEO of a company, well, maybe there's a good reason for it and maybe they earned their position. Um, the, the more left view is that you have a system of elites that's based on a system of exploitation, uh, you know, that the economically privileged got there, got there by making other people poor or taking advantage of other people. Uh, you know, the left tends to be more critical of economic elites. The right tends to be more critical of political elites, uh, although I don't think you can totally separate them. You know, I, I, the, the, I am an elite theorist in the sense that of all the different sociological schools that try to understand how societies work, uh, I tend to agree with the elite theorists, and there's a lot of different types of elite theorists, so I, I, and I, my own views are kind of eclectic. But I do think that if we you know, want to look at how our modern societies work, uh, we can make an analogy to something like the Middle Ages. Like if we look at the Middle Ages, we see that you had the royal elites, the royal families. You had the aristocratic elites, which tended to be the hereditary, titled, large landowners and things like that. And then you had the clerical elites, the persons 
holding high-ranking status in the church, and then you had military elites, and you know, and you had merchant elites, and all that kind of stuff too. And you have the modern equivalent of that. You know, in modern societies, you have the the political elite, the economic elite, the academic elite, the professional elite, the military elite, um, the media elite is a big one. Um, in fact, you know, even though in the United States we've never had royalty or or a formal aristocracy, we've more than made up for that by making presidents into and their families into a new royalty, like uh, particularly the way the Kennedy family historically was venerated by the American society. And we do that with celebrities. I mean, the Cardassians. I mean, you know, it's. I mean, I mean, the Cardassians are just our version of the of the Windsors or, or one of the European royal families or something like that. Um, so, you know, that, that, that raises a lot of questions. Is that just something that is endemic to American society or, I mean, I mean, just endemic to human society? Is that just something people do? They just create elites of this type for whatever reason. If you don't have one kind of elite, you'll have another kind. Or um, is it something that could theoretically be eliminated? You know, like, to, to me, again, the issue was power. You know, like what what do elites actually do? I mean, how much control can they exercise over the wider society, over the lives of other people? And in that sense, yeah, we obviously have an elite. You know, I mean, Jeff Bezos is part of the elite. Um, Joe Biden's part of the elite. Um, you know, the uh, CEO of, of BlackRock is, is part of the elite. The CEO of MSNBC is part of the elite. Um, so. Uh, I, to me, it's a question of power. It, how, to what degree is power concentrated? And I, the question that follows after that is, is it possible to avoid concentrations of power to such a degree that you don't produce an elite? Like, uh, for example, in, an, in industries, you know, we have if you uh, all, all the major industries, whether it's manufacturing or healthcare, or whatever, is it possible for industries that provide basic services or, or manufacture basic products, is it possible for those to be structured in a way that you don't create a hierarchical elite of top executives or top investors that then have the means of essentially controlling the government through uh, through buying buying politicians and things like that? Uh, you know, can power within industrial organizations and economic organizations be dispersed in a way that it doesn't uh, create that kind of uh, uh, imbalance of power. Same thing with with politics. I mean, can you abolish government or strip government down or localize government or whatever to the point that you're not going to have highly concentrated elites that can you know, that have far-reaching powers? But you know, the thing is, even at the local level, you do find elites. Like in a in in, in the United States. Even when you look at local power, local politics, you see that uh, local city councils and things like that tend to be controlled by what amounts to an oligarchy or oligopoly of real estate interests and the most powerful local businesses and, and things like that. The Chamber of Commerce and you know the, the local banking institutions. Um, so, you know, and you seem to see, see this at every layer. Um, so. I think that all societies are going to have experts. Uh, the question is, how do you distinguish between experts on one hand and, and mere power holders on the other? And how can you structure society in a way that you're not going to have excessive concentrations of power in the hands of 
different kinds of power holders, and that's really the dilemma. You know, I think it's possible to have fewer elites than more. Uh, is it is it possible to do away with them entirely? That I'm not so sure about. You you made the comment about merit. I think merit. Do the elites have merits? And I think I think if you push the right libertarians, the good ones. They actually agree with the left libertarians, well, the left anarchists, or even the Marxists for that matter, more. Hans Hoppe had a lecture, What Marx Gets Right. Um, and, uh, and most, you know, Rothbard, of course, has the article about bigs and businessmen aren't the most, are the, aren't the most exploited or whatever. It was in response to Ayn Rand's article. Um, so I do, so me and Swithin recently went through like the 110 richest people in the world. And I think we found that all top 10 are dodgy by Rothbardian standards here now whether whether libertarians in practice do that or not is a good question i will say that on the other side of the political spectrum the left isn't always they, they do have a kind of fauci or or you know certain types of climate change or certain types of other ex, ex quote unquote experts they have a I'd, I'd argue a little too much uh treat them a little too much like nobility to be just simple like you know if you're getting a jet engine fixed or you're getting a tooth fix it's a little more than that um, so my next question would be along the lines, uh, can there be elites who aren't exploitative, right? It's, this could be almost a term, a term problem here where, where if elite just means illegitimate power and an illegitimate power, the only way you get that position is through that. Of course, by definition, there can't be a, 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 a illegitimate power here. Um, and I do like the elites. I do. One of the things I think that interests me about you is, I would say the Marxists somewhat historicalize a specific order of relations, which, you know, it's like when you're talking about like the pharaohs of ancient Egypt, for example, it's unclear whether or even the Spartans, unclear whether the the Marxist economics ideas that described by the historical Marxists even work. But elite theory, that makes sense. It's more cross-cultural and cross-time here. So what would you make? Can there be elites who aren't? Uh, it, I mean, it's quite clear that Bill Gates gained his power through IP and uh, other sort of inside, you know, you can make claims, inside trading of some variety, uh, money, debt. You can, you know, there's a, a long litany of crates. You take in, any individual billionaire. Uh, but of course, the Bidens or the Clintons, you, 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 the state power, this is the ones that the right libertarians would attack. They also are kind of unmerited elite. But at some point along the line, oftentimes you find Someone in their family did do something somewhat productive, whether whatever it may be. Although maybe maybe not the maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's just all it's all it's all uh, theft or whatever you want to call all the way down. But what would you make of it? Can there be a such thing as a a non-exploitative elite, or is that just a word salad, Keith? Yeah, uh, it, that's an interesting question. Uh, the way that you started off started that off was interesting because you were talking about reviewing the list of people who are the wealthiest people. I think a lot of those lists are deceptive because usually when you look at the you know list of the world's 100 or 500 richest people or whatever, it's usually a collection of hedge fund managers and tech entrepreneurs and people of that type, the Bill Gates types. But I actually think there's a lot of stuff left off of those lists that I think are more significant. Um, you, you, the true measure of wealth is not what you personally own. 
but your ability to command resources. Uh, a good example are these televangelists like we have in the United States who may not personally own a private jet. It may be in the name of their church or some um, nonprofit foundation or something like that, but they still own it for all practical purposes because they use it whenever they want to. Um, you know, that's the real measure of wealth. And if we measure wealth in that way, I think there's a lot of people who are more wealthy or a lot of groups that are more wealthy than the ones that we typically see on these formal lists of the world's most wealthy. Like, I suspect that, you know, like, like usually these lists of the most wealthy, they're, they're these multi-billionaires, you know, the Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerbergs and people like that. But I suspect if you look at the actual wealth of some of the royal families um, in, in Europe and in the Middle East, that probably, um, some of them are probably approach being trillionaires. Like I would guess that the royal family of, of Saudi Arabia are probably trillionaires. Um, and also you have to look at the way wealth is distributed through families and then through informal organizations that are controlled by a very narrow uh, sec sector of people. You know, I think so. It's really not so much even the billionaires that are that are the elites. It's the de facto trillionaires that are the elites. Um, but as far as you know, whether you can have non-exploitative elites, there's there's always the question of how do you even define exploitation? You know, the left, the Marxists and the left anarchists will say wage labor is exploitation. All right, the right libertarians to say, well, no, only only physical coercion is exploitation. Uh, then, then there are some people, left and right, who take it even further and they say no psychological manipulation is exploitation or, or uh, so, you know, whatever. Um, so, um, so there's a big question about how do you even define that. Uh, I, I think that the question of whether you can have elites that are either very powerful or very wealthy who aren't doing something that would normally be considered crooked in any other context, I, I, I tend to think that's probably fairly doubtful. Um, if you think about every organization, every individual out there that is part of the economic or political elite and leaving aside the you know, football players and all of that, um, you know, it, most of them, I think, if you look into their background, you see that they either inherited their position, and, you know, maybe that's okay, but but they either inherited their position or they they gained the system somehow, either economically or politically, or often both, uh, or they benefited heavily from some pre-existing arrangement that was already set up to create an imbalance of power. Um, so, uh, and, and if you if you stripped all that away, you know, like like um, it, it's interesting how you have a lot of people who claim to be free market economists, but they're really not. If you if you listen to the things they say, because I've actually aside from the most hardcore libertarians, I've really I've never read, really met so many uh, very many free market economists who were say against government pr printing money, government building roads government in issuing patents, you know, all these very basic things that government does that create an economic system. Uh, if there was no patents, you know, how would that affect the economy? Uh, like if, you know, for example, if there was no such thing as trademarks, if I, Keith Preston, could go and open a restaurant and just call it McDonald's and use the McDonald's golden arches if I felt like and 
you know, and if the McDonald's company said, you know, well, you've got to pay us a franchise fee or royalties or whatever, I just gave them the middle finger and said, no, this is a free enterprise. You know, you've got your McDonald's. I've got my McDonald's. Um, if you could do that in a free market economy, which I think that that would be a free market economy, a real free market economy would work like that because you would not have the state enforcing trademarks and, and patents and intellectual property. You know, I, how would that change economic life? I think it would change it in a, in a way that was very, very, very far reaching. Um, you know, I mean, you know, even even like I said, even at the local level, it's interesting to look at the way in which laws that are or, organ that are enacted at the state and local level. Forget about national governments and world trade systems and all that. Even the way county and city governments are structured in terms of their laws zoning is used to constrict the supply of housing which raises the cost of of, of housing uh, business licensing is used to keep people uh, who are smaller competitors from entering particular markets um, you know all kinds of uh, public nuisance and public order regulations are basically used to protect middle class lifestyles from competition from more looping sectors um, if you stripped away all of that, what kind of economic system would you have? Uh, I, I don't know, but I, I do think, though, that, you know, I, I'm of two minds on this because I think that at every level, this kind of systems that we're used to are, are created to, to prop up an elite, an exploitive elite, or specially privileged or artificially privileged elite. On the other hand, I also tend to think that organizations of any size tend to be oligarchies. You know, I tend to agree with Robert Michaels and, and thinkers like that. Uh, so, you know, like say for example, anarcho-syndicalism as a theory, you have anarcho-syndicalists who say, well, we don't believe in capitalists or we don't want to have an industrial system that's controlled by say investors and CEOs. We want to have an industrial system that's run by unions and they're, and they're, you know, we're going to have a federation of unions and you know, and then in, the, in different industries, the, each industry is going to be managed by its own workers' union that's organized democratically. Right? But I still think in a system like that, you'd have a de facto oligarchy because, you know, for one thing, any kind of democracy tends to be an oligarchy of special interests, if for no other reason, because you have people that are just more motivated to seek out power and influence in, in a group like that. Um, also, power tends to centralize itself very easily. Uh, you know, it, it's very hard to maintain a, a non-centralized uh, system of power, particularly when you're dealing with a large organization. Uh, on the other hand, there are organizations that exist even on a transnational level that are very large, and you, I guess you could debate whether they're exploitive or not, but they're still larger, largely voluntary. One of the most interesting examples is the World Council of Churches. You know, the World Council of Churches is an international federation of representing different Protestant church denominations. And I think the Catholic Church has its own, uh, you know, observers or, you know, they, they have, I think the Catholic Church doesn't belong to the World Council of Churches, but they have a relationship. And uh, I've read that theoretically that the World Council of Churches represents about two million, two billion people because it re represents most of the mainline Protestant churches and the Catholic Church. Uh, I think some of the evangelicals and more fundamentalist Protestants re refuse to participate in it. But so this is a worldwide organization that theoretically represents many, many smaller organizations, which includes 
collectively billions of people, but it's still a largely voluntary organization. You know, like you can like there there are very few countries today where the, where any kind of Christian church is the state church in a way that has real power. I mean, yeah, you've got the Church of England. I think in uh, Argentina, the Catholic Church is the official church, but that's not the same thing as the, what it was in the Middle Ages. It, that's a, you know, it, it's not the kind of theocracy, you know, the real theocracy that you see somewhere like Saudi Arabia. So Christian churches in the modern world are largely voluntary organizations, and they are organized often on a transnational and, and in many ways a highly centralized basis. But they're they're still voluntary because nobody really has to belong to them that doesn't want to. Uh, and then, and then there's also the question of, of, well, yeah, but they still have a hierarchy uh, or they still have an internal oligarchy, like the Pope is still, you know, the, the oligarch, the monarch of the Catholic Church. But, yeah, like he doesn't really get a lot of respect from people who don't like the Catholic Church. You know, it's not like it's against the law to insult them or anything like that. Um, so, you know, would, would, is that really a, a system of elites? You know, is, how elite is that? You know, I, I suppose I could personally deal with a system of elites where it's kind of like what the World Council of Churches is, where it's a bunch of organizations that nobody has to belong to if they don't want to. And it's not like a crime to insult the leadership or anything. Um, although a lot of the when I whenever I debate this with leftists, though, they you know, they go on and on about, well, there's psychological exploitation, there's emotional exploitation. You know, children are brainwashed into the religion of their parents and, you know. What about the freedom of children? I mean, you can you can take this, you know, you can take these ideas way out on a limb, I guess. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I suppose you, you could say that, uh, you know, if, if one kid can run faster than the other, the, the slow kid is being exploited or something. Um, but what I tend to be concerned about are, are real systems of real power where, you know, where the state can kill you or or where the, you know, maybe a, a, the leader of a, a company, a business can't really order you to be sentenced to death, but they can, you know, use their economic power to control the state and write laws in their own interest. You know, those are the kinds of systems of uh, power and domination and exploitation that, and elitism that I tend to be interested in or critical of. And I think the question is, how do you go about rolling that back? That's interesting, the uh, last thing you said there, Keith, because what I was going to ask you uh, was, um, how would you understand power? I mean, you've mentioned it a little bit uh, earlier and just now. Um, it reminds me because um, I was reading some, uh, hmm, yeah, I, I was reading some feminist sociology a number of months ago, and uh, they kept going on about power all the time in the patriarchy. And I kept thinking, okay, what actually constitutes power? Um, and so um, Tim and I, hmm, many episodes back, did an episode on what is what is power. Uh, I was just going to give a very brief overview of that and see what your your thoughts are on it and where you'd locate what you thought were the most important parts of power. Uh, it seemed to me that the best way of understanding power was the means to achieve your goals. That would seem to be to be uh, a reasonable way of, of, of defining the term. Uh, and you could make a distinction, say, between power over nature and power over people. Uh, so uh, I referred to like power over nature as physical power, being able to transform the external environment into something habitable, you know, like air conditioning, for instance, in Las Vegas. Um, and then the one we're probably more interested in here, uh, power over people. And you've used some of these terms so far. So effectively economic power, uh, which I've defined as uh, the ability to acquire other goods and services by essentially selling your own. So via exchange, effectively. Uh, and then the one that I think seems to be at the bottom of 
the exploitation, although again, how you define this properly, what I refer to as violent power, which is basically legal, but it could also be sort of like what would be more straightforward criminal, uh, sort of threatening violence against people just on the street or whatever. Um, you then have what I refer to as relational power, which seems to be uh, best described in kind of media influence. Um, effectively, you can change people's goals um, by uh, by propaganda or just general influence uh, within the media. So, I mean, uh, back, say, a year or so ago, that um, there was general feeling that if you didn't wear a mask in, inside, you were somehow killing people. And then the, it kind of created social norms of shame that people decided, oh, no, I better wear a mask just because, you know, I don't want to look the odd man out, uh, for instance. Um then you have um, persuasive power. You just, just convince people you're convincing, you know, go and buy this product or um, uh, go and uh, sell your car or, or you can just persuade people. And then ones that are not hugely important, necessary intellectual power, the ability to understand the world, spiritual power, the ability to come closer to the ultimate, whatever you want to define that as. I was trying to be uh, comprehensive. Um, so of those um, broad types, uh, and, uh, which would you say are the sort of ones which are open to sort of exploitation uh, and, and abuse? The, the reason I ask this is just uh, power tends to be used uh, quite loosely by other people. And so trying to really nail down from the elites and what we mean by power, I think, could be quite useful. Yeah. Um, back in the 1930s, uh, Bertrand Russell put out a book on power. I think it's just called Power, um, where he reviewed a lot of the different types of power as he defined them. You know, and there was just the, there was what he called naked power, which is um, just the power to basically force somebody to do something, you know, either through threat of physical co coercion or something like that. There's also economic power. There's also the power of public opinion. There's also uh, what Max Weber called charismatic power. That is, you are an individual that you command power just because people like you or you're, they respect your position or something like that. You know, kind of like the Pope or somebody of that nature that's a religious leader. Uh, there's, you know, there's hierarchical power, but then there's also uh, what Russell called revolutionary power. That is power stemming from the bottom up. Uh, you know, where, you know, people overthrow a government or, or, or just mob mob action, you know, mob rule or something like that. So power can come from a lot of different um, sources, as you just described. I, I think the most important definition of power, meaning of power, is the ability to command the actions of others. Like if I want to tell other people what to do, how do I make them comply? You know, there's a number of ways in which that can happen. You know, the obvious one of the most um, brute, brute uh, types of power is, is physical coercion. Uh, you know, if, if you have certain elites that they can more or less tell other people what to do under threat of physical coercion. You have other contexts where somebody might be able to uh, exercise power over someone through threatening their economic livelihood, you know, like. Like an employer might be able to say to an employee, well, you know, uh, no, no, I can't put you in jail, but I can fire you and then you're going to be impoverished and not be able to take care of yourself and your de dependents and all of that. Um, I, I think that economic power is a big deal. Um, you know, I, I come across some right libertarians that seem to think 
economic power is no big deal at all, and this, they're only concerned about actually actual political power, like like making laws and that kind of thing. But I think economic power does matter. Um, you know, there's also uh, cultural power, and I think cultural power is important. You know, a lot of people on the libertarian left talk about that. They say, well, when you have oppressive social norms and, and, and that kind of stuff, like exclusionary attitudes towards gay people or whatever, you know, they talk about cultural power. And I do think there's something to that. I probably wouldn't put as much emphasis on cultural power as some left libertarians do, because I do think it's tertiary compared to uh, political and, and economic power. Um, but I could I could conceive of a society where there was very little in the way of government and even where perhaps economic power was fairly widely dispersed, but where the social norms were such that it was very oppressive to individuals like, say, in, in, inside, uh, you know, say a, a, within a cult or something like that, uh, or in a society that's very, very uh, conservative and say it's religious views, like say a country like Saudi Arabia. You know, like I, w- I wouldn't want to be a woman or a gay person or, or any kind of religious minority in Saudi Arabia, irrespective of what kind of government or, or economic system they have. So cultural power does matter. Um, you know, of course, there's military power and there's the ability to simply attack your enemies and, and run them over uh, if that's what you want to do. Uh, you know, so all of these different kinds of power matter. But I also think there's a type of I guess you could say there's a layer of different types of power based on their significance. Um, you know, like one thing I hear a lot of people from the left in the United States complain about is they will say, well, public opinion polls show that most Americans are in favor of this or that policy, and yet the government doesn't doesn't do what Americans want them to do. Like the, one example in the United States is public health care. Like opinion polls will show them majority of Americans favor universal health care. And then the uh, the left, the progressives and social Democrats will say, yeah, but the you know the government ignore, ignores public opinion. They won't give us universal health care. Uh, and, and I do think that does, ref- I mean, without getting into a debate about whether universal health care is a good idea or public health care is a good idea, I do think that that reflects a system of power. I think in, in, uh, in the United States, we have an elite political class and an elite economic class or overlapping classes that have a, t- a type of oligarchical power that more or less does what it wants, irrespective of public opinion. Uh, and, and many societies work that way, and probably most, in, you know, at least historically. You know, so I do think that you know, the, the most serious form of power is, is raw physical coercion. You, know, you can kill people or you can physically harm people or you can physically restrain people or incarcerate people if they don't do what you say. I think that's the most significant form of power. That's a major problem I have with a lot of leftists who think, well, you know, government is bad, but the corporations are worse or this or that other thing is worse. You know, and they'll, they'll try to defend government on the grounds that it's democratic, whereas a, say a corporation is a, a hierarchy or something like that. I don't I'm not much impressed with that line of thought. I mean, I, I understand it. I might agree with it in part, but I don't, uh, I'm not much impressed with it. I mean, I think raw physical power is the most serious form of power. Economic power, that is the ability to threaten other people's livelihoods if they don't do 
what you want them to do. That is also a very significant form of power. Uh, you know, so physical force and threatening is other people's material well-being are the two most significant forms of power. Now, we could add to that cultural power, psychological power, charismatic power, you know, power of public opinion, you know, power of the people, you know, whatever. Those are all forms of power, but it's those first forms that I think really matter the most when we're talking about elites. You know, it's the people in society who can who can kill you physically, kill you economically, you know, those are the people who really are the real elites and who are the real power holders. I guess the next question I'll ask is related to democracy. You sort of touched on this at the end here. You're not very much impressed by the people who say, well, uh, are so many such and such majority want X where X is health care and so forth. And therefore, we should have it. I think one of the easiest retorts is. One of the problems the the left would have is, well, such and such probably want to put homosexuals in jail. That's probably not as true as much, although you could probably still find a plurality, especially in other societies. You could definitely find um, where things where certain things are actually popular, which they don't like. Um, um, You know, certain uh, people would probably want to burn their enemies. So you were on with Sean Gabb. Me and Twithin did an episode about this with Todd Lewis and Sean Gabb once. And things like classical liberals, quote unquote, classical liberals defended it's not, it's not entirely clear that they're always popular, like trial by jury. I can imagine a lot of people didn't want Derek Chavon to have a trial. I can imagine people didn't didn't want – and in reverse, the MacArthur's, the Joe MacArthur types probably wouldn't want to have such and such. So just because something's a popular public opinion doesn't necessarily make it quote-unquote good. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll posit that, but more more generally about democracy, uh, it seems like it seems like in the past elites – and Hayek sort of gets into this why the worst gets on top, uh, that that it, that in a society which is a quote-unquote formal democracy in the sense that – now, there, there's always the Alex Jones theory, more conspiracy-minded, which is the elections are just decided in advance and so forth. But it seems like the elections in places like Britain, France, United States, they at least – they're not obviously corrupt. It's not like they're, uh, the votes are obviously corrupt. There might be – corruption underneath or so forth but it's not obviously corrupt does does this process and the, the franchise used to be much smaller in the 1850s than it is in the 1900s women minorities of course you know weren't and there were certain rules and of course that you know property ownership was i think still fairly relevant and there's voter polls and taxes lots of things but it sounds like we have a quote-unquote formal democratic society but it's also somewhat powerless I mean, you could just sort of pick, you know, I, you know, you know. I think Tom Woods has the joke. Every time you get the, it, all you get is John McCain. No matter who you elect, you get John McCain. So there's one thing where voter power. You're just basically picking between parties, and as both as the Sandernistas found out that like the Democratic Party can create whatever rules it wants. Super delegates, sure, they can create super delegates. They can pick the questions for their preferred candidates. Because the Democratic Party is not a public institution, it's a private institution, but defined by classical liberals, hence they can – the existing Democratic leadership. And this is also true of the uh, Republican Party of the United States, but of course Trump got through there, Ron Paul less so. Well, Ron Paul – I forget the precise history on that. I don't want to say, but but there seems to be – there's it seems to be that democracy may create worse elites. What do you, what do you make on that? That's a sort of right-wing – 
criticism of democracy. But if I go back in history, I'm not sure if Hayek is right. What were the Bourbons or the Romanoffs or, or better than the Clintons and the uh, Wilsons? I'm not sure. Like, what do you make on that debate? Which side do you create better elites? I guess the question is better. But of course, you could argue that that the the, 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 the quote unquote democratic this is the Hoppian the democratic electric elites were actually worse. This is Richard Pipes' idea that that the Stalinistas, to the extent they were more de- democratic, actually had more enemies than the, the, the Romanovs and killed more people. Although this is always utilitarian. What do you make on that debate, Keith? Sorry for the wrong-winded question, but I sort of wanted to get the point across about defining democracy because you see, like voting power is very weak. I don't. I often on vote. I I I think it's a waste of time. My personal opinion, but the voting advocates would say the opposite. Well, one point where I disagree strongly with virtually all modern liberals and leftists, and not a few people on the right either, is that I think that modern democracy is way overrated. Um, the, the I, I mean, it may be better than certain things. You know, I, I would rather live in any contemporary parliamentary state than in the Third Reich or in the DPRK or in, in some kind of system like that. But the um, liberal democracy, as it's commonly called, I think is largely what its critics from both the left and the right say it is. Uh, if you look at what the Marxist critique of liberal democracy is, they basically say, look, democracy is just a smokescreen. Elections are just a public ritual that's used to convey legitimacy on the real elites. And then the real elites are those who control the economic system. And there's a right wing variation of that, usually more traditional throne and altar type conservatives use. And they will say the same thing. They will say, look, liberal democracy is basically just a step down from rule by the aristocracy and royalty to rule by the merchant class. And then it throws in an element of mob rule as well. So you, you know, they, they will say that modern democratic republics are essentially states that are run by the commercial elites uh, in collusion with politicians who are usually just mediocre individuals um, who are professional bureaucrats, essentially. Uh, and then they legitimize themselves with all, with all sorts of pageantry. And then they, uh, you know, they, you know, convince the people that they are free or or have a say so in the system simply through holding ritualistic elections every few years. And and then democracy, a problem with it is that the, the, the more inclusive you make democracy, the more expansive the state actually becomes because you have more and more groups in society that you have to do things for and you have to pander to, you know, more people who need some kind of program to, uh, for, to promote their own interests, more people who want laws promoting their own objectives. Uh, you know, so, you know, I, I think the left and right criticisms of modern, you know, liberal democracy are largely accurate. Um, you know, one uh, argument that I constantly hear from American style liberals and leftists uh, because in my own political outlook, I'm a big advocate of things like decentralization of, of political and economic power. 
And the most common response that I get is, yeah, but if you do that, well, somebody somewhere might be racist, you know, or somebody might not be able to get an abortion or somebody might discriminate against gays as if that's the only consideration. You know, one thing I always say in response to that is if you look at, for example, the administration of President Lyndon Johnson that enacted the Civil Rights Act, well, what else was Lyndon Johnson doing? Well, he was escalating the Vietnam War, uh, you know, and 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 uh, things like that. You know, if you look at the Lincoln uh, regime in the United States that issued the Emancipation uh, Proclamation, well, where where did they go after? Where did the Union forces go after they defeated the Confederacy? Well, they went westward and started attacking the Native American nations. Uh, so. There's this very, uh, I, I say this a lot in the context of American politics. I'm not sure if it works the same way in, in other countries or not. But in American politics, the, the standard progressive narrative that you get uh, is that, well, you know, American society has been growing and improving over time. You know, we had the we had these founding father guys and yeah, they had some good ideas they got from the Enlightenment or whatever. But they were also racist, sexist, homophobic, elite, aristocratic, you know, whatever, planter class, this, that, and the other thing. But we've been gradually overcoming that. You know, we 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 had a war to end slavery, and we we grew uh, a larger federal government to provide everybody with social security, and then we passed this federal uh, civil rights laws, a civil rights act, and and now we have Obamacare, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and all of that is progress, you know, that, that shows how much our society has improved over time. And of course, they always ignore the downside of that. They always ignore all the things that their heroes did that, you know, by even by the, uh, by the even, well, sometimes even by the standards of the time, but certainly by today's standards, you know, were, were pretty, uh, pretty hardcore in terms of, you know, the way somebody might object to them. Um, so I, I, I tend to be very, very skeptical of modern mass democracy on a general level. You know, it's like for every right they give you, they take one away. Um, you know, like, uh, I mean, one example is after they uh, started doing away with racial segregation in the 60s and 70s, they replaced it with the war on drugs, which arguably just had just as negative an impact on, say, blacks and other poor people as segregation did, um, perhaps even worse of one. Um, so, it's uh, it's uh, I think all of this is something that's really this whole concept of mass democracy is something that's overrated. Now, democracy can exist, I think, among small groups where there's a basic shared consensus on what the basic values of the society are. As I gave her the example I gave earlier of the federations, the large federations of voluntary organizations like the World Council of Churches. You know, even something like that, I think, I guess you could say that's another type of democracy, a type of voluntary democracy or whatever. But the idea of running the state as a mass democracy is the concept that I'm just not impressed with at all. You know, it's uh, uh, I I, I don't see how that really has brought about any kind of progress in any meaningful sense, or at least that wasn't canceled out by some kind of problem that it created in the process. Um, Keith, on historical notes, um, is there any sort of uh, time period or geographical area that 
approximates most closely uh well more closely than others uh your idea of uh decentralization and um um dispersal uh, of power uh, i was wondering if there were any sort of historical um time periods you might point to for some uh, sort of concrete examples i gave a lecture about that at a conference in london about i think it was in 2018 um and that's available online. There's a video of it. And I, I also want to attack the system, I, which is the website that I run uh, on attack the system. There's a somewhere on there in the archives is an, as a PowerPoint from that presentation. Uh, but if somebody wants to Google this, all they have to do is Google my name, Keith Preston, anarchist communities, colon, past, present and future. This is a very elaborate, extensive presentation I did at a conference in, in England in, uh, in 2018. Um, and uh, it's got about, the, the PowerPoint has about 250 slides on it or something like that. So it's, it's pretty extensive. Um, but I, what I do in that is I give examples of all kinds of societies from the past, present and future that have existed uh, without any kind of government uh, of an overarching nature or where government was kept under control, or where you had stateless territories and things like that. There's a lot of variations to this. But as far as things that are more well known, you know, a lot of anarchists will cite all kinds of historic anarchist and quasi-anarchist communities, like the left-type anarchists are big on Spain uh, during the Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, you had Aragon and Catalonia and provinces where the anarchist militias and trade organizations, labor organizations, uh, created these anarchist collectives and communes and that kind of stuff. And a lot of the anarcho-capitalists uh, like to look at uh, medieval Ireland or medieval Iceland and, and places like that. Um, I'd say looking at it on a, on a bigger scale, um, it, as far as societies that existed on a large scale and with a significant amount of decentralization over a long period of time and were real civilizations, not just a commune here and there, not just something that lasted for a few years or, uh, or not just some utopian colony. Um, we do have examples of this. One I think is Greece. One of my favorite is an, favorites is ancient Greece. Ancient Greece existed for centuries as largely just a collection of cities. There was about 1100 cities in ancient Greece. And we know from the writings of Aristotle that there were probably at least about 158 different systems of government in these different cities. Um, and now you, that, that's not to say there, there were not plenty of things in the Greek cities that modern people would oppose. I mean, clearly there were, there, were, there was slavery, there was misogyny and, and real misogyny. I mean, I mean, Taliban level misogyny. Um, there were wars between different cities. Uh, you know, there were, there was repression of political dissidents like, like Socrates. But you still had a system where you managed to have a collection of cities that were spread out over a large geographical region and largely retained their independence for, for centuries. And so part of that was because the geographical area was very difficult to navigate you know, when you don't, didn't have modern transportation technology. Also, the elites within different cities tended to be very uh, jealous of their, their own prerogatives and local privileges and that kind of thing. So that kept an overarching political system from uh, starting. 
um, you know, even when the Persians tried to invade Greece, the, the cities managed to put together enough of a coalition that they were able to repel the, the Persians. So Greece is one example. One example is the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire existed for, um, I guess, about a thousand years. It was a federation of what amounted to hundreds of kingdoms. And then you had inter interstitial areas that were like free cities and you know, independent territories and things like that. Uh, and where people more or less did what they wanted to within the context of their own uh, areas. Now, it's also true that this was a feudal system. I'm sure, you know, liberals and progressives who hear this today, they'd say, oh, but they had serfdom or they had, you know, whatever. So that I'd say, yeah, it was the Middle Ages. Or they had a lot of stuff we didn't have in, in modern societies. Um, another example that involves some degree of decentralization within a more overarching state system is the Ottoman Turks. You know, theoretically, the Ottoman Empire was a Sunni Islamic empire. It was theoretically under Sharia law. But being pragmatist, the, the Ottomans um, had a system they called the millets that were um, they were they more or less allowed different ethnic and religious groups to pretty much govern themselves, sort of a system of home rule. You know, that is, as long as you're not trying to overthrow the government, you can pretty much do what you want. Uh, you know, and, and the, the in Islam, they have this concept called the people of the book which basically means non-Muslims who were still okay because they were sort of like forerunners to Islam. You know, they, they include in that the Christians, the Jews, uh, some of the Zoroastrians, you know, some of the early uh, pre-Islamic monotheist religions, you know, and, and, they, and they can get pretty pragmatic with this. Like at one point, I think the Ottomans even decided, well, the, okay, yeah, the Hindus can be people of the book too, because some of them are kind of sort of monotheist. So, okay, good enough. Um, so, but that you had the Ottoman millet system where you, uh, different people of different cultures were able to practice self-rule. Now, again, I'm sure some progressive types listed this and say, ah, but they had this, that, or the other thing. Yeah, they did. It was the Middle Ages. Um, you know, in, in uh, even in traditional China, while China was always something of a, always had the concept of the emperor and the, you know, the mandate from heaven and that kind of stuff. China did not necessarily have historically a, a, a very obtrusive state system. Uh, I think in part that was because they didn't really have a unitary religion. You know, like when, when Christian missionaries from the West first started going to China, they, they thought, well, this is weird. They don't have any religion here. You know, but they just had a different, much different approach. They just had their ancestral traditions and folk traditions and that kind of stuff. And in, in traditional China, you'd, you'd find a different set of religions for every village. You know, like, well, this village worships these gods and the village up the street worships these gods and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's another example. Um, of course, in early America, you know, before the westward expansion really consolidated itself, you had all these utopian colonies and religious communities and things like that spread out. Uh, in, in different places, all these different kinds of experimental societies. Um, you know, you, you, in the Middle Ages, you had the, the the medieval leagues, the Hanseatic League and the Lombard League and all these kinds of things. I mean, they were really just basically trade confederations. Uh, in, in modern societies, you have these microstates like Liechtenstein and, and Dora and places like that. The question is, to what degree can those exist outside being under the umbrella of larger states? Like you could say, well, the real reason somewhere like Liechtenstein survives is because it's under the European umbrella, which is under the NATO umbrella, you know, like, uh, 
you know, I don't, I don't know that a, a neighboring regime like the Third Reich would necessarily espouse, would uphold the sovereignty of Liechtenstein. But, uh, you know, so there, there's always issues like that. But, yeah, you, I mean, you can find plenty of examples of all kinds of societies where you have power spread out and dispersed among uh, groups, localities, regions, things like that. Of course, there's, there's political and economic power. I do think that when, you, when you're talking about decentralization of political power, you do need to think about economic power as well, because you can have uh, a decentralized political system of, of political power, but then you have very exploitive local elites. And I, I gave the example early, earlier of in a lot of local communities in the United States, cities and counties, towns, those are just basically oligopolies of local real estate interests and local businesses and local banks and that kind of stuff. And if you look at how laws are structured, zoning laws, business licensing laws, you know, traffic laws, you know, it's all it all seems to be about trying to, you know, privilege the people who have the greatest access to city council and, and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, and protect more middle class lifestyle interests and, and those kinds of things. So economic power does matter, but there are plenty of examples uh, historically and from the contemporary world of societies where power has been spread out to some degree and where you don't have huge concentrations of wealth or, or political power. We're, we're over an hour here, so I guess this will be my final question here. Um, and that's the sort of, I'd say, the personal characteristic of the elites themselves. You know, you, you, know, you brought up a summary, you, you threw, I think, Swith, was it Swithin or you? You said something like, um, no, it was you, you said that, you know, like they were misogynists or they were, yeah, uh, you know, the ancient, you're speaking of the ancient Greeks there, and that's probably true. You know, of course, it's probably true much more than today. Although, maybe in a way, it's not. It's still, uh, it's still. If you take certain degrees, it's maybe it's still the same here. But, um, or would you say the elites are mainly? This might be too big of a question for the final question. Are the elites more elite because they're kind of, and, and there's sort of ways I could in. I could I, I hear the left in my head or not in my head necessarily, but uh, 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 you know, accusing you know, accusing me of like all sorts of wrong thing by even formulating this question. Are the elites a sort of class of people, or are they just sort of a result of like a of a system? Um, because on the one hand, you have the, like the Bidens and the Clintons, like like or even like the Bezos, they're all quite intelligent. Uh, they're all like you can't. It's hard to easily say there are, but are they intelligent as James Madison? Probably not. Probably James Madison is, or someone like that. But the sort of founding dynasties are generally fairly smart. I think it's founding dynasties of, of like uh, economic, like the rocket, the initial generations. I think I think one family lost all the money within two generations. Um, um, so would you say the elites? And this is where Jordan Peterson gets in trouble, or not in trouble too. You know, he'll say that lobsters, certain lobsters, have hierarchies here, and that therefore, now a lot of the left-wing people would point out that you know, he himself is sort of a basket case, and this is sort of, you know, just because that's true doesn't mean that you need all these other elites here. Although some of the right-wing correspondents would say it is. But what would you make of that? Is it is it is it kind of like a are the elites we see? Are they? Is it? Could they be explained away by personal things, or are they just more? You said that they, they that certain economic rules prop them up and are used to protect them. And if they didn't have them, they w- would go away. Now I would say that if they went away. Maybe different elites would arise, um, and maybe those elites would be less, less or m- more 
agreeable. You know, Sean Gabb was once asked, you know, he was defending the aristocracy of the past. He said, would you – someone asked, I think the Libertarian Alliance asked, would you want to live there? And Sean Gabb said, I'm not sure. I, If you sent me back in there, maybe I w- would hate them just as much as I hate the Clintons or the Boris Johnson I do today. But, but what would you make of the – are the elites – you know, it seems like elites happen throughout history. Um, are they just? Are they? Could they be explained by sort of personality traits, competence traits? What would you? What would you say about the elites themselves? Not necessarily, or 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 is it the system that creates them? It's not. It's not. They're not just a sort of aberration. Because uh, I mean, you know, you have the, the man on the street who's just sort of like you're a school teacher, or a factory worker, and then you have Jeff Bezos or King Louis the Fourteenth. There seems to be a category difference between those people, or maybe there isn't. What would you make of that kind of analysis, Keith? Well, uh, I wrote an essay that dealt with this issue some years ago um, because there was this guy, this far left guy, sort of a, uh, a, a like a fascist watchdog type of guy uh, some years ago who wrote a very extensive critique of my work, or at least my work up until that point. Um, and I wrote a rebuttal to him where I was ta- talking about some of these issues. And I outlined a theory that I called the theory of the sheep, wolves, and owls. Um, and what I argued was that most people are essentially sheep. And, and, and meaning that most people get their ideas about what is good and bad, right and wrong, from cues that are taken from leaders and peers that they perceive to be legitimate. I mean, there's a reason, for example, why most people in certain parts of the world are Muslim and most, pe- most people in other parts of the world are Christian or Hindu or, or have this or that. Uh, set of values about different things. You know, most people follow the norms of the family that they come from, the community they're from, the culture they're from, the norms of the time period in which they live, and that's just what people do. I mean, most people are like sheep in the sense that, you know, they want, you know, they want food and shelter and and you know entertainment and maybe they want their own family or children or whatever to be taken care of, uh, but. Beyond that, they don't really think abstractly. They follow the norms of what they're accustomed to. You know, that's what most people seem to do. Whether that's good or bad, I think is not really a relevant issue. It's just more like, it's just more descriptive. It's just, that's what people do. You have other people that I call owls, uh, and these are people that are capable of rising above this kind of herd mentality. That is, people who question existing norms, you know, go against the grain, those kinds of things. Uh, And these kinds of people are rare. You don't have that many people who, say, uh, look at the norms of their particular society and say, no, I don't agree with this. This is wrong. This is not good. Now, I'm not saying everybody that goes against existing norms is necessarily on the right track or or, sim- or necessarily a superior person. Uh, I'm not saying that at all, but you do find a minority of people that are capable of rising above groupthink, herdthink, the promptings of leaders and authority figures uh, in, in a way that's far more significant than what you find among most people. 
And I think it's often these people who were the primary agents of real change or reform or innovation in society. And then there's a third category of people that I call wolves. And these are the people who are most likely to become powerful. These are people that are aggressive, ruthless, predatory, amoral, self-centered, self-seeking. These are the people who do what's necessary to advance their own interests. They're not as worried about deferring to group norms, but then they don't really think necessarily on the same kind of abstract way uh, that a, a, what I, a person I call an owl might think. These are just people that are about looking out for number one, and they tend to be of above average intelligence, and they tend to be good at getting what they want. Um, that, I think, is where most people who are part of the elite come from. Most people who are part of the elite, whether it's political figures, whether it's business leaders, whether it's uh, you know, high-ranking officials and in institutions generally, I think most of them are, are wolf personalities. Uh, now, they're dependent on a whole lot of sheep, um, and there may be some owls who manage to blend in among them. But I think the wolf personality type is really the foundation of, of what makes the kind of person who becomes uh, uh, an elite. Um, you know, I mean, one example is the mafia. All right. Now, the, in the mafia, what makes someone get to the top of the mafia? Well, basically, they shoot the people who, who, who are their competitors. You know, they, they're, they're cunning enough and they have enough guile and they're calculating enough that they're able to outcalculate their rivals, and that's how they eventually become the boss of a crime family or something like that. And I think it works the same way in most institutions, maybe not with that level of extremity, you know, like maybe, maybe you know, you, the way you make it uh, to the top of a corporation is you just become a really uh, cutthroat businessman, or, or alternately, you become somebody who's just a sycophant to someone like that. Um, you know, maybe you don't actually have to kill anybody or, or something of that nature. But I, I think that that's where elites on average come from. They come from these kind of wolf personalities that are basically just aggressive self-seekers. Um, and if you look at the personal lives of so many elites, I mean, that's what you see. I mean, if you look at the background of the Clintons, if you look at the background of Donald Trump, if you look at the background of, uh, you know, Richard Nixon or, or you know, I mean, you, you see that. You see that these are self-seeking individuals that manage to become powerful uh, just largely through hustling the system. Um, and you also see other people who seem to have been born into a system of privilege. One obvious example is the former U.S. President George W. Bush. I mean, that guy was a complete moron, and it was, it was only because he was from a prominent family, a prominent political family, that he eventually got to be president of the United States. Um, and you, if you look at someone like o Obama, Barack Obama, he, he was basically just an empty suit who was ambitious. I mean, he was no different than your guy who's working his way up the corporate ladder, and he, you know, he found the right sponsors to sort of groom him to become the, the president eventually. I mean, you know, and it works the same way in, in most countries and most societies and most institutions. It's, it's in the government. It's in other institutions. Um, now, one, one of the things you said that I think was interesting is about how you often find the founding generation of elites that create a new system and then that deteriorates over time. You do see an interesting pattern there as well. Um, 
you know, my, my theory is that revolutions tend to happen when you have an upwardly mobile middle class or upwardly mobile sectors of society that have their political ambitions frustrated. Like, I think that's what led to the revolution in France. The American Revolution, I think, was rooted in that. The Cromwell Revolution, uh, the Russian Revolution. Uh, I think most most revolutions, mass revolutions that I'm familiar with, you typically had a rising sector of society that had its political ambitions frustrated by some sort of pre-existing elite that had become corrupt or uh, impervious to reform. And that's how you get revolutions. Uh, you, know, you, you, you could compare the founding generations of Americans with the kind of political leaders we have today. And yeah, I mean, if you if you read George George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and uh, and James Madison and guys like that, compare them with Joe Biden and Donald Trump and Barack Obama. I mean, you see what pathetic mediocrities our American political leaders are today. But it's like that everywhere. I mean, if you compare the founders of the Soviet Union, Lenin, Trotsky, now whatever else could be said about them, right? It, 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 they were intelligent. They had the talent and ability to carry out a revolution, seize power, create a state of their own, uh, and do the things that they did. Uh, if you compare Lenin and Trotsky and Bukharin and some of the early Soviet leaders with the later Soviet leaders, you know, of, of the 1980s, when they're all a bunch of geriatric pillheads that, you know, that, you know, like one guy gets appointed premier and dies six months later than another one. It's the same process. You do see that institutions and organizations do tend to te- deteriorate from their founding. You, you see that a, a, you, you find a new generation that comes along, pushes out some previous generation that had become uh, that had deteriorated. Then they start a new system that's somewhat revolutionary or dynamic or whatever, and then that deteriorates over time. Uh, you, you see that everywhere, and I do think that's interesting I, because what happens is that once a system is established, it, it's easier and easier for mediocrities to become part of that establishment uh, because the next generation after the founding generation, they didn't create the system, they inherited it. or they got to where they are by brown nosing the people on top or something like that. So I think that's why systems tend to deteriorate over time. Thank you for joining us, Keith. That has been a very interesting discussion. I'd now just like to thank everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us and pop in on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. Uh, finally, if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com.